A pastor was once attending a Bible study conference. He was gone for the weekend, and he was absent from his church. Well, he asked his secretary to place a notice in the Sunday bulletin that would explain his absence. She meant to type, our pastor is away attending a study conference. But that's not what she typed. She actually typed study, but she left off the Y so that the announcement read, our pastor is away attending a stud conference this weekend. And to make matters worse, the remainder of what she typed read, please keep him in your prayers. (laughs) Well, tonight in Daniel chapter 5, we're going to study about a stud conference. A party gone wild, complete with wine and women thrown by the Babylonian king Belshazzar. It's a party that gets out of hand and it gets interrupted by the hand of God. A blasphemous Babylonian throws a bash that the almighty God decides to crash. As we'll see, God gets sort of a backhanded invitation to this banquet. And he makes his presence known in a most unusual way. Let's join the party already in progress. Chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Twenty-three years now pass between chapters 4 and 5. Nebuchadnezzar is dead and his throne is occupied by a grandson named Belshazzar. And for the last 20 years, Babylon has been at war with the Medes and the Persians. In fact, for the previous two years, the city of Babylon has been under siege. And yet, despite the onslaught, Belshazzar felt that the Babylonians were invincible. Their city was impregnable. In fact, Herodotus, a Greek historian, gives us some impressive details as to the fortifications of the ancient city of Babylon. The city was 15 miles square, surrounded by a double wall separated by a 30-foot moat. The outer wall was 311 feet high and 87 feet thick. You could line 11 cars abreast on top of the walls. The wall also had 250 watchtowers, some soaring an additional 100 feet into the sky. Even by modern standards, the walls were an impressive piece of high-rise architecture. And then under the walls flowed the Euphrates River. It provided Babylon with its own water supply. Historians report that the city had the food reserves to last 20 years. No wonder Belshazzar felt smug. He felt self-assured. And to show off his confidence, the king hosts this banquet. Now here's the scene. The enemy is outside plotting while Belshazzar and his thousand lords are inside partying. Incidentally, archaeologists believe they've actually found the banquet hall where Belshazzar's party was held. In the ruins of Babylon, they've discovered a room connected to the king's palace. It's 56 feet wide by 173 feet long. And across from the main entrance, in the longer wall, there was a double niche where they believe the king's throne actually sat. This long wall was covered with a white plaster, which made for the backdrop of what happens next. 
Well, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Now this banquet quickly turns into a drunken orgy. Most oriental kings didn't drink in public, and their sexual antics were restricted to their harem. But here it seems Belshazzar, he disregards all regal protocol. Apparently he was a hard-drinking playboy. Here he is drinking with his wives and his concubines. The king's immorality was bad enough, but what tips the scales in the eyes of God is when Belshazzar brings out the vessels from the Jewish temple. Remember when his grandpa, Nebuchadnezzar, conquered Jerusalem, he took the holy vessels from the temple back to Babylon as trophies of his victory. These were the sacred saucers, the consecrated cups, the dedicated dishes. God's law commanded that the utensils used in the temple service were to be used for no other purpose than the service and worship of God. Belshazzar knew. He knew this. But in his arrogance and defiance, he deliberately defiles these holy vessels. He turns the holy vessels of the Lord into beer mugs. Imagine a party where the host uses communion trays and communion cups that he stole from the church, and he mockingly serves whiskey in the communion cups. Communion cups as shot glasses? He toasts his prostitutes with communion cups. Well, that's exactly what Belshazzar's doing. Verse 4 tells us, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Secular records show that Belshazzar's father, King Nabonidus, was extremely superstitious. He had stolen the idols of the surrounding cities and he had brought them to Babel to supposedly protect him against his enemies. No doubt Belshazzar's ballroom was adorned with all these idols. And now he has the audacity to add the sacred vessels of Yahweh to his collection of worthless gods. Verse 5 tells us, in the same hour, in other words, at the very moment they put God's vessels to their polluted lips, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of that hand that wrote. Now most of us are familiar with handwriting on the wall. It's done in crayon by our kids and our grandkids. But this handwriting on the wall is by the finger of God. Talk about immediate sobriety. That party sobers up in a hurry. The king has no need for a stiff cup of coffee. The hand of God on the wall sobered him. Think of it. In a backhanded kind of way, Belshazzar had invited God to his party. (laughs) If he didn't want God to show up, he shouldn't have been toying with what God had called sacred. He should have never thumbed his nose in God's face. Now God crashes his party. 
Imagine the tension that would fill our room tonight if suddenly a mysterious finger wrote on the long wall on this side of the sanctuary, addressing us, a message to us specifically. It would sober up the room, would it not? Well, then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him. God throws a wet blanket on his party so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Now, this is very descriptive language. The joints of his hips were loosened. That's sort of a King James way of saying it scared the stuffing out of the guy. Belshazzar's party wasn't too many party prunes. His problem wasn't too many party prunes. He got some divinely inspired diarrhea. That's what happened to him. This scared him to death. His hips loosened. In addition to him soiling his britches, we're told his knees started knocking. He's scared to death. Which brings up one of my favorite jokes. If you've heard it before, please excuse it. It just needs to be told right here at this point in the text. There once was a British Navy captain. One day his cabin boy ran to his quarters to inform him that a Spanish galleon was just off the starboard brow. The captain barked, fetch me my red vest and man the battle stations. Days later, the cabin boy came in again with news that a Sp- two Spanish galleons were off the port side. The captain ordered, fetch me my red vest and sound the battle stations. One day the cabin boy, he asked the captain, he said, why did you, do you always wear your red vest in the midst of a battle? Well, the brave captain replied, he said, Sonny, he said, I wear my red vest just in case I sustain an injury in battle. I don't want my men to see me bleeding and then let a wounded captain discourage them. Well, the next day, the boy ran into the cabin. He shouted, Captain, Captain, the entire Spanish armada is just on the horizon. To which the captain replied, Sonny, fetch me my red vest and my brown pants and sound the battle stations. Well, that was Belshazzar. Verse 7. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Now this queen was probably the queen mother. We're not certain, but this could have been Queen Amidas, or Amatus. This was the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. Earlier in their marriage, Amatus became homesick for the green hills of the country where she had grown up. To alleviate her nostalgia for home, Nebuchadnezzar had built for her enjoyment what would become one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You've heard of it. Here the queen, though, is the only person old enough to remember Daniel. 
She tells King Belshazzar, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the Spirit of God, of the Holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was probably his grandfather, but since there's no word for grandpa in the Chaldean language, any male ancestor was referred to as father. He says, Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give you the interpretation. Now, it seems this brash Belshazzar had forced Daniel into retirement, so to speak. Didn't think he needed Daniel's godly counsel. And maybe some of your friends have retired you. Ever since you became a fanatical religious person, as they call you, they've sort of put you on the shelf. Oh, since you've become a Christian, they no longer have any use for you or your input. But that doesn't mean they won't in the future. Joseph Parker once wrote this. You will be wanted someday, Belshazzar. You have not been invited to the feast, but you will be there before it ends. The king will not ask you to drink wine, but he will ask you to tell the secret of his pain. And heal the malady of his heart. Just wait your time, preachers. You are nobody now. Who cares for men of insight while the wine goes around and the feast is unfolding its tempting luxuries? But the preacher will have his opportunity. They will send for him when all other friends have failed. May he then come fearlessly, independently, asking only to be a channel through which divine communication can be addressed. Then may he speak to the listening trouble of the world. Eventually, you will be invited to the party. But not to participate in it. But to help heal the pain and the hurt that's been caused. You'll get your moment to speak into your lost friend's life. You just wait. The day will come. Well, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah? whom my father the king brought from Judah. Daniel was so far off Belshazzar's radar, he didn't even recognize him. The king says to Daniel, I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. As if worldly wealth and earthly promotion were going to motivate Daniel. Not hardly. Well, then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. 
You know, remember, whenever Daniel addressed Nebuchadnezzar, he always did so respectfully. He always used the proper protocol. He would come in and say, O king, live forever. That was the proper way to greet the king. Daniel knew Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument. In fact, he probably loved the man. But he had no such respect for Belshazzar. This was a royal punk who was not nearly as noble as his grandpa. Daniel says to him in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom in majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and then took his glory from him. And they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. As we saw back in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar learned some profound lessons. God humbled him. He whittled him down to size. Daniel says, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Belshazzar, he knew the history. He knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and yet he had deliberately ignored God's warnings. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. See, it all started when Belshazzar brought out those temple vessels. He deliberately picked a fight with God. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Wow. Daniel doesn't mince words, does he? Belshazzar thought he was this king, that he was sovereign. But God holds his next breath in his hands. Daniel says to the king, God owns you. You're just a puppet in his hand. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many tackle you farsen. Now, these are all Aramaic words. Many means numbered. Tekel means weighed. Eupharsin is divided. So the message literally read, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Now, here's the question. Why were the Babylonians unable to come up with an interpretation? Certainly, they knew Aramaic. We really don't know. Some Bible teachers suspect that a kind of blindness fell over the soothsayers and the astrologers so that they couldn't read it clearly. The Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, has a tradition that the letters were actually written vertically rather than horizontally, and this confused the soothsayers. We're not really sure why they couldn't read the inscription, but Daniel could read it. And he says to the king, this is the interpretation of each word. Many... 
God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. In modern lingo, your number is up. Belshazzar has had his opportunity to repent. And he didn't do it. Ever play a board game with one of those little timers with the sand in it? You know, it's your turn and they flip the timer over. And when that last grain of sand just sort of trickles to the bottom, whoop, time's up. Did you know we're all on a timer? Today is the day of salvation. But one day the offer will be over. Our number will be up. Verse 27, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found warning. The Hebrew word translated glory actually means heaviness. When stacked up against God's glory, the king lacks substance. Belshazzar is a lightweight. He comes up short in every regard. And you know, this is the case with all of us. We might be plump physically, but spiritually we're all anemic. We're gaunt. None of us match up to the glory of God, which is the standard. Only Jesus adds weight to balance our scales. And then he says, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Perez is the singular form of the plural euphorson. And here it has a double meaning. The term literally means to divide by breaking. And Babylon will be broken that very night. It will be conquered and divided. But the word uh, also in Aramaic, it's the word for Persian. Perez or Persian. And it was the Persians who at that very moment were invading the city of Babylon. They were only minutes from assaulting Belshazzar's party and dethroning the king. The night was October the 12th, 539 B.C. That's the date of Belshazzar's party. While the, he and his thousand lords were partying on the inside of the palace, outside the walls of Babylon, the Persian general, Ugabaru, had divided his army into thirds. Two-thirds were stationed where the Euphrates River flowed under the city's walls. The other third had been dispatched several miles upstream to divert the Euphrates River into a lake bed, an empty lake bed. So as the Babylonians partied hardy, the water level of the river began to drop. It dropped lower and lower and lower as the night went on. By midnight... The riverbed had dried up enough to begin the invasion. Rather than go over the walls of Babylon, the Persians entered the city by coming under the walls, through the riverbed. Because of lack of security, or maybe because the guards had been bought off, the gates from the river into the city were left open, and the Persians came streaming into the city unopposed. God's judgment was fulfilled. That very night, the Medes and Persians conquered the mighty city of Babylon without a battle, without even firing a shot. It's a fact of history. Today, you can go to the London Museum and you can see a cylinder known as the Steel of Cyrus, in which Cyrus, the Persian king, boasts of how he humbled Babylon. Verse 29 tells us, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck 
and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. What a hollow reward. Daniel must have just laughed. In minutes, Babel would no longer be run by Babylonians. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that 14 days later, Cyrus, the Persian emperor, who was Darius's boss, enters the city of Babylon. And he is greeted by an old man with a lengthy scroll. That old man was Daniel. The scroll was the prophecy of Isaiah. And Daniel let, he pointed, he took King Cyrus to the place in Isaiah where the prophet 160 years beforehand, before the fact, described Cyrus's career, his methods, even his means of victory. He even mentioned him by name. In Isaiah 44 and 45, you can read it tonight, Cyrus is mentioned by his very name 100 years before he was born. God knew all of this in advance and prophesied it through Isaiah. And this so impressed Cyrus that it compelled him to help the Jews return to their land, just as Isaiah and other prophets had predicted. He released the temple treasures back to the Jews, to the returning Jews, and he even issued a decree financing their journey. Talk about God turning the tables. He did it in one night. One archaeological note, for years secular sources named Nabonidus as the last Babylonian king. There was no mention of Belshazzar as we find here in Daniel. And of course the skeptics, they doubted the historicity and reliability of the Bible. But in 1861 and then again in 1882, cuneiform tablets were published they're now known as the Nabonidus Chronicles. In these ancient documents, Nabonidus names his son Belshazzar as his co-regent in charge of Babylon. There was a Belshazzar after all. This confirmed the historicity of Daniel and explains why the king kept offering Daniel the third ranking office in the land instead of the second. Why? Because Babylon already had two kings at the time. Before leaving chapter 5, let me sum it up poetically. At the feast of King Belshazzar and a thousand of his lords, while they drank from golden vessels, as the book of truth records, on that night as they reveled in the royal palace hall, they were seized with consternation at the hand upon the wall. So our deeds are recorded. There's a hand that's writing now. Give your heart to Jesus, to his royal mandate bow. For the day is approaching, it must come to one and all, when the sinner's condemnation will be written on the wall. Chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. These were more regional officials. The 120 satraps were to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps 
because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Darius became fond of Daniel and his abilities, his skills as an administrator. Now realize, Daniel now is in his late to mid-80s. Late 80s, almost 90 years old. And he's still going strong. Reminds me of the lady who turned 100 years old. At her birthday party, someone asked her, said, if she'd ever had any children. She replied, not yet. (laughs) Age is mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. Well, Daniel remained active in the Persian government. He was probably, probably represented Jewish interests. It goes on. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. You know, it's been said, jealousy is the tribute that mediocrity pays to excellence. Jealousy. And it was because of Daniel's excellent spirit that his peers were green with envy. In fact, in order to accuse Daniel, they launched a private investigation. Not the first time one political entity has tried to dig up dirt on an opponent. But to their dismay, Daniel turns up clean. No sex scandals. No girlfriends on the side. No campaign finance irregularities. No insider trading, no political paybacks, no private email servers, nothing. Daniel was blameless. Oh, that our enemies would have the same trouble finding a chink in our armor. Seriously, what if a private eye spent the next 30 days turning your life upside down? He scoured your online accounts. He scanned your hard drives, looked through your Facebook page, bugged your conversations, wiretapped your phone, put a surveillance camera on you 24-7. What dirt would he find? Daniel was a professional diplomat. He lived and he worked in pagan politics for seven decades. Yet they could find no fault. You see, verse 4 is an important verse. Because it proves that it is possible to live in this wicked world and not be polluted by it. It is possible. You don't have to get down in the mud to get things done. The stream that runs through a mind and heart can be pure. We can stand up for God and survive. We can even thrive. In fact, it's not only possible, it's what God expects. Well, verse 5 tells us, Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. This was Daniel's only Achilles heel. This was the only non-negotiable in his life. How could they turn his devotion to God against him? That was what they were asking. This also shows the hatred these satraps and governors had toward Daniel. Remember, the old boy's pushing 90. You think they could have just waited for him to die off. Instead, they plot a trap. And so these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. 
All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. They found no flaw in Daniel, so they exploit the arrogance of King Darius. And he's compelled by their flatteries to sign this idiotic law. Why would you ever sign such a terrible law? Think of the sick people who for 30 days were unable to ask God for healing. Think about all the students who were having to take those tests on their own. Or farmers unable to pray for rain for a whole month. It really was a stupid decree. But notice the three tools that Daniel's enemies use to persuade this king to sign this edict. For these are the same tools that Satan will use against you to cause you to make rash decisions, idiotic decisions. We can do that sometimes. First, they created a fanfare. We're told they thronged before the king. It was designed to create confusion, to throw the king off his game, to get him discombobulated, and it worked. He wasn't thinking. Second, notice they falsified the truth. They said that all the governors had collaborated on this idea. We know one governor that didn't. (laughs) Daniel didn't agree with this. And then third, they used flattery. Darius was a skilled administrator. The problem, though, was that he liked to hear other people say so. And because of flattery, he made this rash decision. All this combined, the fanfare, the falsehood, the flattery, caused this king, and it often prompts us to make rash and poor choices. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. No longer a rumor, it's now a done deal. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Now notice what Daniel doesn't do. He doesn't file an appeal with the courts, seeking an injunction doesn't start a petition drive. He doesn't jam the palace switchboards with phone calls. He doesn't panic at all. Nor does he start making concessions in his prayer life. Imagine he could have rationalized. Well, you know, God hears me with the window shut. I don't really have to kneel to pray. Why attract attention to myself? No, no. You see, instead of a counterattack, instead of a compromise, Daniel refuses to let the fear of man affect his approach to God. He refuses to let the fear of man affect his approach to God. He doesn't alter his devotional life one iota. Daniel does what Daniel always does. Over the years, he had developed a pattern 
We're told this had been going on since early in his life. He had developed a discipline of holiness. Every day, three times a day, he would open his windows. He would cock himself toward Jerusalem. He would then get down on his knees and he would pray. Like the Dr. Pepper slogan, 10, 2, and 4, man. Notice five things about Daniel's habitual holiness. First, he had a place to pray. Do you have a place to pray? He went to his upper room. Maybe it was quieter there, I don't know. Above the street noise. But Daniel had a specific location designated where he prayed. Second, he had regular times for prayer. Periods for prayer. His prayer life was recurrent. And it was always at a regular time. Third, Daniel had a posture for prayer. He knelt on his knees. Now, nowhere does the Bible say that you have to kneel to pray. But bending your knee can help you humble your heart. Daniel knelt when he prayed. Then fourth, Daniel, his prayer was pointed toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the site of the temple. In the Old Testament, God's glory resided in the temple. Thus, prayers went through Jerusalem. Even today, Jews log on to the internet and they send their prayers to the Wailing Wall. They believe their prayers are more likely to be answered if pointed properly. And you know, as Christians, we believe the same. We point, we aim our prayers, not at a physical location, but our prayers are in Jesus' name, are they not? We point our prayers. When we pray, we go through Jesus. And then fifth, notice Daniel's purpose for prayer. He gave thanks before his God. Even though he is sentencing his, he is sealing his death sentence by, by praying this prayer, it's still his duty as a child of God to give his father thanks. And so he prays. Hey, here are the keys to a healthy prayer life. Do you have a place? Do you have a place to pray? Do you have a period or a time that you're accustomed to praying? Do you have a posture in which you like to pray? Do you point or aim your prayers in the right direction in Jesus' name? And do you have a purpose for your prayer? Do you give thanks to God? And realize it is the habitual that prepares you for the unusual. It is the habitual that prepares you for the unusual. The lion's den was an anomaly. It was a rare trial. But it was Daniel's routine that got him ready for the trial. Well, Daniel had maintained this habit for years, and his enemies had observed it. Verse 11. Then these men assembled, and they found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. They had staked out Daniel's condo just to see him, and catch him in the act. And they went before the king, and they spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Under Persian law, the monarch's actions were considered infallible, so Since it was impossible for him to make a mistake, then he couldn't go back and alter a decree after it had been made. And so they answered and said before the king, 
that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show you due regard, due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed. But he makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. Notice he wasn't upset with Daniel. He was mad that he'd been so stupid. And he'd made such an idiotic decree. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Darius realizes he's been bamboozled. He lays aside all the other pressing business and he works all day with his lawyers, seeking a loophole, trying to get an injunction, some way to save his friend Daniel. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Notice Daniel's persistence, his faithfulness. He serves the Lord continually. That's how he was known. And then notice the king's faith. It seems to be genuine. The king believed that Daniel's God would save him from this terrible ordeal. At least he was hoping. And then a stone was brought and laid it on the mouth of the den And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Darius sets his royal seal on the lion's den to ensure against any tampering. I think he may have been worried more about foul play than the lions. Verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no musicians were brought before him. No entertainment this night. And his sleep went from him. They say the softest pillow is a clear conscience. If so, then Darius spent the night on a bed of nails. Then the king arose very early in the morning. And he went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And you kind of wondered, did Daniel pause a second or two just for effect, you know? Just to kind of make the king sweat a little bit? His rash decree certainly deserved it. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. You know, in Daniel's reply, you sense almost a cheerfulness. The king in his palace had spent the night in turmoil, while Daniel had been at peace in the lion's den. You would expect a role reversal. Darius at peace and Daniel restless. But Daniel rested in the den as Darius worried Because of his sin. The most most peaceful place on earth, I think you'll find, is in the very center of God's will. The most peaceful place on earth is in the center of God's will. Even if it places you in a den of man-eaters. Actually, Daniel would have rested either way. Either he'd be with God in heaven or the God of heaven would be with him in the lion's den. Since it was the latter, Darius could rest too. I love what Shakespeare said. 
Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant taste of death but once. In verse 22, Daniel explains how God delivered him. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. An angel had struck these lines with lockjaw. Here's an interesting thought, though. What stopped the line? I understand the, they, they, he, the angel closed their mouths. That's what Daniel says. But what stopped the lions from mauling Daniel with their paws? Then eating him later. Well, apparently, God changed their temperament as well. Made these man-eaters docile. You know, one day, he'll work the same miracle globally all over the world. Isaiah 11 verse 6 says, When Jesus returns, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Reminds me of the little girl who heard of Daniel's story in Sunday school. Her teacher asked the class, How could Daniel have been so brave? The little girl answered, Daniel wasn't afraid because he knew one of the lions was the lion of the tribe of Judah. It could be this angel that's mentioned here or messenger was the pre-incarnate Christ. You remember Daniel 3? We're told that one like the Son of God showed up in the fiery furnace. Why not in the lion's den? Christ himself may have helped Daniel. And that would be great encouragement for us. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil sets tricks and traps for us. At times, every Christian spends a night or two in the lion's den, for it's there we taste the power of the Lion of Judah. What better place to learn the Lord's promises to you and me? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Have you ever found yourself face to face with an angry dog? A mean dog, an aggressive dog? You know, they always say that in such a situation, it's best to exude confidence. Because if that dog sniffs any fear from you, it just emboldens the dog. Daniel was fearless. And I wonder if that had the opposite effect on the lions. I wonder if his confidence in God caused them to sort of back down. The lions might have feared Daniel more than Daniel feared the lions. Daniel knew that his plight wouldn't be determined by the claws and jaws of the lions, but by the hands of God. Charles Spurgeon used to say, It's a good thing those lions didn't eat old Daniel. They would have choked on him. Daniel was half grit and half backbone. Perhaps God was actually looking out for the lions. They might have broken their teeth on the tough faith of Daniel. Verse 23. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he believed in his God. Note what saved him. Because he believed in his God. Like us, he was saved by faith. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. 
them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Before they ever touched the ground. They were broken in pieces and the lions had devoured them. This proves that Daniel's deliverance wasn't because the lions lacked an appetite. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. What an interesting edict. Now this is a smart law that he enacts. Men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. You know, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Daniel's greatest fear was not being let down into the lion's den. His greatest fear was letting down his God in fear and in compromise. He feared God more than he feared the lions. And i got to ask us, what, what about you? What do you fear? Who do you fear offending? Darius' decree continues, For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. It's God's kingdom, not Darius' kingdom, not the kingdom of the Persians that will endure forever. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? it's possible we'll meet Darius in heaven. I believe we will. I believe along with Nebuchadnezzar, we'll meet him in heaven. They both seem to have had a sincere faith. Chapter 6 concludes, So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And here's the moral of the story. Don't allow yourself to be frightened or bullied by those who are determined to pick on Christianity or to oppose Christians. Don't be bullied. Daniel didn't go out looking for a fight, but when it came to him, he was brave, he was bold, he had faith, and he was faithful. Daniel was a stand-up person in a bow-down world. Let's all be stand-up people in this bow-down world. Let's dare to be a Daniel. Take a stand when it's your turn. God will be with you, even in the lion's den.